Welcome back to Bible time. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. Here it says in the word of God, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also ye suffer. Father, in Jesus' name, please open our understanding to this text. Please give me a power and utterance and unction to preach it. Help me, Lord God, to have boldness to live it. And Lord God, I pray, Lord, that your son would be exalted, magnified, lifted up and exalted, Lord, through this message and through this work in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Here in 2 Thessalonians, in verse 5, we have a transition here as he begins to speak of being counted worthy. Being counted worthy is making a transition into the kingdom of God, which will lay the foundation and set the stage for the rest of chapter 1 and getting on through most of chapter 2. And really the main reason that the second epistle of Paul to the church at Thessalonica was written, which is dealing with kingdom coming theology. And we'll get to that in just a little while here. Here in our first point, we want to look at this. Um, we want to look at this first phrase in here: the manifest token, which is a manifest token. What is a manifest token? Well, when something is made manifest, it means it is brought to light. It means that it is brought to public view. It is brought to bear where people can see it, where it becomes plain and open. There will be a day when Jesus Christ judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and everything you've ever thought and done, even in secret, even when you were alone and nobody was with you will be made manifest and will be open and naked in the sight of him who beholds all things, Jesus Christ, which is a paraphrase of a Bible verse um, that I hadn't put in the notes there, so forgive me that paraphrase. So the manifestation here, the a, a manifestation is something being made open. A lot of times people um, apply the word manifestation to um, things like the occult or things like the Holy Spirit, which sometimes in some churches, there's no difference between the occult and what they call the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit manifested himself in reality in at the on the day of Pentecost and has manifested himself many times since. Um, some churches say that the Holy Spirit no longer manifests himself, and this we know to be false. The Holy Spirit manifests himself regularly. He came to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. If the Holy Spirit stops manifesting himself miraculously, we people would stop being saved because people cannot even be saved unless the Holy Spirit manifests himself miraculously. Salvation is a work of that is um, started and continued and finished, completed and sealed and carried through by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is still at work today and this manifest token here is the bringing to light, the bringing to bear the light of God on a subject. What is is the subject, this righteous judgment of God of this church. A manifest token here is the phrase that is given. What is a token? A token is something like a seal, only more simple. A state might have a seal. A king might have a seal, something that he marks his official decrees with. But a token instead of a seal, a token is something that can be passed as a symbol of authenticity. 
So for example, um, a token could be used for entry into an event. You may have to have a token and it might come in the form of a little custom coin that would be given to you and that little custom coin would then have a value that is only valuable in that certain circle. And we're going to find today that this token is only valuable in the certain circle of the true church of Jesus Christ. That in all false churches, this manifest token is despised and hated and preached down. Here, this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also ye suffer. Here, he's saying that this is the passcode. In the early church in Rome, whenever the uh, dictators there were putting Christians to death and feeding them to lions, they uh, they had a token that they would draw, and that was the ichthus, which would be a fish in the Greek. They would in the in that Greek culture, Greek and Latin, they would draw a fish on the wall, and that fish would be a sign to other Christians that this was a place where Jesus Christ was worshipped. Why a fish? Well, I haven't gotten into the whole study of that thing, and I couldn't really tell you because the Bible doesn't tell me, and I haven't really studied it out, but they chose a fish, and that was their token, and that fish would show them. It was a symbol that they had chosen to identify themselves amongst themselves, but that did not mean anything to anybody else, and they did it to keep themselves undercover and keep themselves from detection. So the fish would be there, and a soldier would walk by, and he'd say, they must have fish for sale, and walk on by, or something like that. And the Christian would walk by and say, there's a believer, and be able to go and fellowship with that believer without getting caught. So they used the fish as a token. Here the Bible is telling us that there is a manifest token, not a hidden token, not a subtle token, but an open token, a, a seal, a stamp, if you will, of God's righteous judgment, which does not mean the outpouring of God's wrath. We'll look at that in a minute. This means that God is judging them righteous, that God is counting them righteous and worthy. And there's a seal, a token, a manifest outward exhibition of God's pleasure with them. Do you hear me today? Do you follow this today? Are you able to follow along today? This is a manifest, open, outward manifestation of God's pleasure with them. This manifest token is something that shows to them, shows to other churches, shows to the whole world that these are the true church of Jesus Christ. You say, what is that token? Well, um, some people would say, well, it must mean the denominational name on the sign. Other people would say, well, it must mean a degree hanging in the pastor's office from a particular school. That token, that must be a certain phrase in the statement of faith. They say, no, 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 that token, that must be a certain type of church polity, a certain structure to the church. No, no, another person would say, that token, that would be the times of the day that they assemble on. You see, if they don't really keep the Sabbath, they're not really God's church, and they would have a time of the day or a certain day of the week that they would say, that makes them a true church and that doesn't make them a true church. God says, here is a manifest token. And that manifest token would be surprising to you if you don't know the Lord. But that manifest token is in the context the the phrase here in verse 5 says which is a manifest token? Which is a manifest token? And what is it that he's referring to? It's in verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Sure. 
The token is what we studied last time. The manifest token is what we studied last time that in the midst of all this tribulation, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of everything going bad, the true church stays faithful to God, faithful to God's word, and bears patiently the cross of grief and shame that is its to bear. Jesus said, if any man will be my disciple, he says, let him take up his cross, let him die daily and follow me in different places if you combine them. He says that the disciple must take up his cross and follow him. And there's a dying daily that we're called to as born again Christians. And that death to self, death to the world, persecution, tribulation, suffering while maintaining a patient reliance on the Lord in the face of persecution and tribulation is the manifest token of a true church. Now someone would say well, what you're saying, Brother Burks, is that the persecution is a true token. So somebody that dies for their faith is a true believer. Well, that is a common belief amongst many um, legalistic groups, especially that if you die for the faith, it proves that you're really right. But it's not dying for the faith. It's dying for faith in Jesus Christ, which is based on the word of God. So if your faith is not a faith that is founded in the word of God, then your faith is not a faith worth dying for and you can die for a faith any faith that is not founded on the word of God and it will do you no good this is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 if I give my body to be burned and have not charity it profiteth me nothing it profiteth me nothing. I heard about two missionaries that went to a place where there was a death penalty for open preaching of the word of God and they went out on the street and they got out their signs and their banners and they got out gospel tracts and they started preaching loudly on the street and the police officers in that particular nation came to them and said, what? They said, are you um, from another country? And these two men said, yes, we are. And he says, we thought so by the way you look and your accent and by the fact that you're doing this. Do you realize this is illegal in our land? And these men said, yes, we realize it, but God said preach. And the officers said, well, your God may have told you to preach, but this comes with the death penalty in our land. Because you are foreigners, we will give you one more chance to stop preaching and leave. And if you do not, you will die for your faith. And the preacher said, do what you got to do. We got to do what we got to do. And they kept preaching. The police officers took them and arrested them, took them to the judge. The judge asked them about three questions. He said, are you foreigners? They said, yes. Asked what their country was. They answered. He says, did the police officers tell you it was illegal to preach on the street? They said, yes. He said, did you preach anyway? They said, yes. The judge said, sentenced to death before the end of the day. They took them back to the same spot they'd been preaching on and killed them right there on the street where they'd been preaching. Was that faith or folly? Well, that's awful hard to tell. If their faith, if their belief was founded in the word of God and they were following the Lord in what they did, it was faith and it would look really bad to everybody else. Now, if they were true believers, I just heard the story. I don't even know what background they have. I don't know what group they were with. I don't know anything else about them. But if you were to look into that story and find that they were Mohammedans and that they believed in the Muslim faith, then you would know that that was folly and that they died in vain and that it did nothing with God. But if you find instead that they were um, believing the word of God, Jesus Christ, and that they had done that out of a true true 
conviction that Jesus had asked it of them through the Holy Spirit of God had led them to do it, then it is a manifest token of their of the righteous judgment of God that they be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. But if they believed in Jesus and they did it to prove that they were something, that's folly. If they just did it to prove it. And see, I, I meet people that are like, well, if you die for your faith, then you really got it. Well, that might not be true. It depends on whether or not you're actually obeying God or not. Now, we could get off on a whole tangent there. We're not going to. But here what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God is their suffering. That is not what is being preached in this nation. In this nation, if you believe in God, you're supposed to have health, wealth, and happiness. You're supposed to have a big house. You're supposed to have tax exemption. You're supposed to have everybody like you and speak well of you. You're supposed to have a big ministry. You're supposed to be treated nicely in the community and to treat everybody else nicely in the community. You're supposed to be well thought of and well sought after, make friends and influence people. That is not what Paul said. Paul said this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you are patiently sticking fast to the word of God while you suffer tribulation for what you are doing. He says your life of following God has brought you into conflict with the world and the system of the world. Your attempts to obey God have brought you into danger. They've brought you into suffering. They've brought you to poverty. They've brought you into ignominy. They've brought you into reproach. It's ruined your reputation. And listen, there's those guys that go out and they just scream at everybody and they don't even preach the Bible and they think they're suffering for God. Peter handles that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about following God and following the Bible. And here God is saying, you have gone through all this. You've done all this stuff for me and the world hates you for it. And it's going bad for you because of it. And you've tried and you've done everything you can do. And it didn't work out for you. And what Paul is saying to this church is this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. God has counted you worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you suffer. Do you see that today? That flies in the absolute face of the modern gospel that's preached in our nation. Paul is saying that the suffering that the church is going through, not just the suffering, but the suffering for the word of God, the suffering in the name of God, and the patient bearing of the suffering while maintaining faith in God in spite of the hardships that are brought upon their lives is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Sign me up, nobody says. Sign me up, nobody says. So you do everything you can do to serve God. You give your life to serve God. You give your wealth to serve God. You give your health to serve God. You spend everything you've got, and at the end of it all, you're poverty-stricken, broke, hated, ignored, despised. Everybody thinks you're stupid. Your reputation's ruined. What do you get for it? The manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you suffer. Is that enough? Is that enough? Or do you need more than that? Let's look at this a little more here. Patience goes back to Romans 5 and verse 1 through 5. And then the faith there 
um, that we looked at yesterday were um, in yesterday's lesson. As it happens, we're preaching these ones back to back same day. It'll it'll post tomorrow, so it will be yesterday's when it comes out, which is what I was thinking. In any case, here Romans five one through five, we looked at patience. So how does that come? Tribulation, and that patience and tribulation brings glory to God, and it brings experience, and it brings hope, which is the maturement of faith. Now you talk about your stocks and bonds maturing. You put money in an account for so many years, and when it matures, you can withdraw it without penalty. Hope is the mature of your faith deposit. When you do something in faith in God and then you suffer for it, you get experience, you get hope. And the hope that comes out of it is the maturing of that whole faith deposit. In the tribulation and the trial that you're going through, when you're under the gun and you still won't back down, God shows others that you are real. Anyone can say whatever they want to say. Anybody can say, I'm a preacher. Anybody can say, I believe in Jesus. Anybody can say, oh, I love the Lord Jesus. Anybody can say, I'm a servant of God. Anybody can say, I'm a prophet. Anybody can say, I'm an apostle. But can you prove it? God validates his servants by allowing them to get into impossible circumstances and letting everyone see, um, see whether or not they falter or fold under the pressure. This is how God validates his servants. He puts them in the pressure cooker. You say, I don't like that. Well, I'm sorry. That's God's way. You can like it or you can lump it. It's God's way. It's how God does it. It's how he's always done it. Look at Abraham. He told him, leave your family, leave your home. He sent him down to wander in Canaan with no certain dwelling place for years before he ever brought the promise. And Abraham was validated because he patiently and faithfully endured the difficult circumstances that God brought in his life until God brought forth the promise. And that's the case over and over and over again in the Bible and in every hero of the faith that we, as we call them, that has ever done anything for God. God validates his man. God validates his ministry. God validates his church by sending his church through the fire of impossibility. And when they go through the fire and the dross has burnt away and the chaff has burnt away and all the wood, hay and stubble has burnt away and there's gold that remains, you know, you've got a real minister, you have a real ministry, you have a real church, you have a real preacher. This is how God validates his work. It is always how God does it. Here he says, this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. A hireling will not submit to this. A hireling will not allow God to put him through the fire. He will always pad his way. He will always make sure he's got his savings account just right. He will always make sure he has a backup plan. He will always make sure he has an escape route plan. He will never go all in for God because he's afraid of the fire and he's built out of wood, hay, and stubble and he knows he'll all burn up so he can't afford to go through the fire. But if you're going to follow God, and if you're going to be real with God, you're going through the fire. We'll get to that in just a little bit here. 
about the soldier. We'll see that in just a minute. We talked about the soldier this morning, which um, will be yesterday's post. God validates his servants by allowing them to get in impossible circumstances and letting everybody watch to see if they will falter or fold under the pressure. Then God miraculously delivers his servants through glorious death as one option. Go to Acts chapter 7. Stephen, you say, I don't like this message. Well, you can shut it off if you want to, but it's truth. Some of you here can't shut it off. feel sorry for you. God will deliver his servant. It might be through a glorious death like Stephen. He was delivered. He went through the fire. He was delivered. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He fell asleep. The rocks hit him. His blood spilled all over the ground. They carried his body out, buried him. He's in heaven. Woo! Sign me up. Said no one ever, right? As they love to say these days. Can't stand that one. Said no one ever. Miraculous defeat of enemies. Now that's one I like. God delivers his servant through the miraculous defeat of his enemies. God does that sometimes. Destroys the enemies like Elamis and Acts. Oh, I like that one. Here's Elamis resisting the gospel and Paul says, thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun. You know how much I would love to have had that so many times? And God has never trusted me with it. And some of you say, I don't wonder why. God's never given me that, but he gave it to Paul. And here Paul said to Elamis, thou shalt be blind and not seeing the sun for a season. Immediately there fell on him a mist of darkness. God miraculously delivered Paul from his enemy by allowing Paul to smite the man with blindness. But other times God made Paul go through the beating. Like the Philippian jailer. How did he get delivered there? After the beating with an earthquake and a sore back that was all bloody and bruised. And then the jailer washed his back, which, by the way, did not feel good. Copy? When that jailer was washing Paul's aching back that had been ripped, the flesh had been ripped open and then scabbed over and the flies had been crawling in it. It was full of dirt and and that jailer's washing it. It didn't feel good, but it was God's deliverance and God's validation of God's man. No matter how God does it, sometimes by miracles, God might do a miracle. You say, God doesn't work miracles today. Well, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry you believe that way. I know better, and I'm not going to join you in your unbelief. God does work miracles. The greatest miracle he works today is salvation of a soul, and that's a miracle. And if you want to try and say I'm splitting hairs, whatever. I love you today in the Lord. Saving souls is the greatest miracle God ever does. But he does many other miracles as well. Whatever God does, God always gets the glory when it's really his servant. Do you hear me today? God sends his servant through the fire. And in the flames of the fire, everybody says, uh, well, let's look at it this way. Here he goes. Here goes, let's say it's Mr. Big Shot Prophet in the Old Testament. And everybody says, yeah, that's a man of God. And then he goes through the fire. And they watch him get down close to the fire and they say, it's, it's a man of God. And they watch him get thrown in the fire and they see the smoke coming up around him and they say, it was a man of God. And then God takes them through the fire and there's no smell of smoke on their garments. And they say, they are men of God. But they did not say, that man of God can walk in fire. What'd they say? They said, your God is the God. God gets the glory when God validates God's man, God's work, God's ministry, God's families, God's people. God gets the glory. And that's why God does it that way, so that God will get the glory. God invites his servant to follow him. 
Then God sends the devil to vet his servant, test his servant, tempt his servant. You say that ain't Bible. Go read Job. And the devil comes and attacks God's servant. And the trial of faith, which is much more precious than of gold, which perisheth, that trial of faith is the payment of the dues to join God's exclusive members-only club of faithful servants of God. You say, I don't want to be part of that club. Well, I'm sorry for you. I'm going to tell you about the benefits of that club membership in just a second. Nobody wants to be part of that club when they look at the dues, but everybody wants to be a member of that club whenever they see the veneration given to one of God's faithful servants who has gone through the fire. One one man of God said, and I don't mind if I name him, Leonard Ravenhill, hate him or love him. Leonard Ravenhill said on his deathbed, he told a, a young preacher came in and said, I want your mantle. Would you lay hands on me and pray over me? And Leonard Ravenhill prayed over the boy. He went out. His Leonard Ravenhill's son was sitting next to him and he said to his son, son, everybody wants my mantle, but nobody wants my sackcloth and ashes. You will not accomplish anything for God, anything without going through the fire. You say, I can accomplish a little bit. Oh, no, you can't. You can accomplish things that you think are worthwhile. But if you will not go through the fire, the judgment day will declare those works to be wood, hay, and stubble. If you won't let God put you through the fire today, then your works will be put through the fire at the judgment seat of Christ before the wedding supper of the Lamb. And your works will be burnt up and you'll suffer loss. Nevertheless, your soul will be saved, praise the Lord, but your works will be burnt. If you will not go through the fire, you will not do anything useful for God. Now, this manifest token is of the righteous judgment of God. This is not the anger of God poured out on his people, but rather the certificate of approval that comes only through a baptism of fire. It kind of cracks me up. And I I hope you don't think I'm being honorary. It cracks me up whenever people talk about, oh, I wish God would send the fire. And so many times they're saying it like it's the fire of God falling on the altar of Elijah. But whenever you say God send the fire, what you're asking is for God to purge you. That's how God is going to send the fire in this dispensation, in this time. (coughs) God sends the fire to burn up your wood, your hay, and your stubble and bring forth a vessel fit for the finer, to bring forth the gold. (coughs) A new soldier is called a raw recruit. And he can get rank, but until he's been in the battle, he's still raw. He can go through training for eight years, nine years, 20 years, but until the soldier has been in the battle, he's not a veteran. When he's been through the battle, one day later, he's a veteran. God is looking for veterans. God's looking for soldiers. God's looking for people who will go through the fire and stand for Christ in the fire. A saint is a babe in Christ until the fight is on and the fire comes and then going through the fire, it works that experience and the hope that makes him a soldier for Christ. The fire is what matures us. The word of God is what grows us. The fire is what matures us. The fire is what makes us like Christ. And we say, God, we need that fire. A preacher was recently preaching on it and how true it is without the fire of God. I was up at the Capitol in Alabama and the preacher up there was preaching on how the church has lost the fire and the church needs the fire of God back again. But I'm telling you folks, the fire burns up the wood, the hay and the stubble. And that is exquisitely painful. 
The fire doesn't just burn things without touching you. You go through the fire when God sends the fire. 1 Corinthians 2.15 deals with this righteous judgment of God. Turn there real quick. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 15, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of all men. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He says down there in chapter 4, Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest bring to light the counsels of the hearts and then shall every man have praise of God. This is talking about God work manifesting burning up the wood the hay and the stubble which was back there in chapter 3. We're going to look at that in the next um, section of our text. If you go on into verse chapter 5 you're going to find church judgment. Chapter 6 judgment of the things of this earth. These are not what he's talking about. The righteous judgment of God is God judging the works of the believers and bringing forth gold whereas there would be none if God didn't do that. You see, so often we build these big fancy ministries in these big buildings and until the fire comes and burns away all the things that God didn't do, we'll never see or believe that those were not of God because we're sure that they're of God. But God sends the fire to burn up the wood, the hay, and the stubble. If you let this happen in this life, you'll have something at judgment because God will show you by degrees how to focus your time and your energy and you won't spend your whole life building a wooden ministry. We should welcome the fire. <coughs> will God, will God find me faithful? Will my faith hold in the fire? Chaff burns away, but faith never burns away. The dross burns away, but the silver remains and does not burn away. Go to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, those good Jews, the ones that followed God, were sent to Babylon, the Bible says, for their own good. Here's a promise that God gave them on their way out. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, I ha for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. He was telling them to fear not because they were in a situation that was normally be considered fearful. They were in a situation that most people would say was not a situation that God would have put his chosen people into. Not a situation that would be right for somebody to be into. There's no way that these people can be right with God. Look at Daniel in chains marching across the desert to get to Babylon where they forcibly emasculate him and make him a eunuch and put him in the house of Babylon to serve the king of Babylon in a secular government. How can this be God's will? How can this be 
good. The fire was burning and the fire was purging and Daniel came forth like gold. Look at this promise here in verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel. And he goes on from there. The fire, they'll go through the fire. They will pass through the fire, but the fire will not burn them. Do you remember when the Hebrew children were thrown in the fire? You remember? And the cords that bound them were burned up. But neither their clothes nor their bodies were touched even by the flame at all or even had the smell of smoke on them. This is what God does. And before that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, those three guys, they were trying to serve God and everybody knew they were trying to serve God, but the jury was still out. You see what I'm saying? The jury was still out in a lot of people's minds. Are these guys real? Are these guys going to stand or are they going to fold? Are they really going to serve their God their whole life? The jury's still out. Then one day Nebuchadnezzar put up that image and he played that music and three men stood. And everybody said, wow, I think they're real. But people still thought, I don't know about this. We'll see about this. Let's tell the king. They took them to the king and the king said, I don't know about these guys. I don't know if they're real. I'm going to give them another chance. And they stood again. And then the king pitched them in the fire and they stood in the fire. And when they stood in the fire, the king said, your God is the God. Your God is the God. They were validated by the fire. Did they want the fire? Absolutely not. Did they seek for the fire? Absolutely not. And anybody that looks for the fire, that's begging God to um, just send them into a fiery furnace, begging God to kill them, begging God to get them crucified has lost their mind. In my opinion. Now, okay, maybe they're way spiritual than I have anything to do with. It ain't me. I'll say that. I'm not that way. But here, these men were validated and shown to be God's men. And Nebuchadnezzar fell on his knees and worshiped the God of heaven because of the fire. He would not have done that if they had preached with all the power of Elijah. He would not have done that if they would have called down fire and burnt up some of his soldiers. He only did that when he saw them go through the fire and come out faithful on the other side of the fire. He says in the Bible that it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. In 1 Corinthians 3, we find this counted worthy. Here's the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy. 1 Corinthians 3.14 shows us, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. That's what counts worthy is talking about. He's not talking about receiving eternal life. He's not talking about um, getting to heaven. He's talking about being counted worthy. I'll show that to you in just a second. This counted worthy is a receiving of a reward. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is not a reward. Romans 5 says salvation is the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. The free gift is the free gift or it's not a free gift. And that's that's what Romans 5 says, says over and over and over again. 
Salvation is a free gift. The reward is for faithful service. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 17. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about his commission to preach the gospel. And he says in verse 17, For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed to me, saying God has given me the job of preaching the gospel. If I do it willingly, I get a reward. Verse 18, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. And he goes on to talk about the great lengths that he goes to to protect the his reward in the gospel. That though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the laws, under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without laws, without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. Oh, how that's been maligned. We're not going to get into that, but some people rest that to their destruction. Here in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receiveth the prize? If you're saved, you're in the race. Now you can sit down and count the daisies and look at the butterflies and try and find animals in the clouds and retie your shoelaces, or you can run. One receives the prize. He says, they that run in a race run all but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. The crown he's talking about, the crown of righteousness, the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God is the reward that God gives for going through the fire and being found faithful. If you refuse the fire, you will refuse the crown by very nature of what you're doing. You say that can't possibly be true. You cannot run a race and win it without pain. You cannot run a race and win it without pain. It takes pain. You say, well, those guys have trained and trained and trained and they run the first two and a half hours of their three hour marathon without pain. They run it basically effortlessly. But how many days of pain and nights of pain have they gone to to get there? Thousands. You cannot run a race and win without pain. And you cannot do anything effective for God without pain. There's an old saying, no pain, no gain. We understand it in CrossFit. We understand it at the gym. We understand it in soldiering and basic training. But when we get to the church house, we think that it's all got to be plush pillows and air conditioning and that we can just roll to heaven on this flowery bed of ease and there's no cross for me and no pain for me. And listen, brother, you may get there, but you're not going to have a reward and you're not going to be counted worthy. Your work is going to be burned. You'll suffer loss, but your soul will be saved. Praise the Lord. And I'm glad for you that your soul will be saved, but boy, you won't be so glad that you took the easy way whenever you get to heaven and are not counted worthy because you chose the easy way in life. Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter nine. Now, even then, the reward is a paltry thing to, to run for, if not for love of Christ. But if you love Christ, then don't you love Christ enough to run for a reward for his glory? Because what do we do with those crowns in heaven anyway? The elders give us the example there in the book of Revelation. They cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. We sing that song about the drummer boy, and he has nothing to give, nothing to give. He has nothing to give the king. And then what does he do? He gives him his drum, or he gives him himself. And, there's, and we talk about these things, but we don't mean it. 
We talk about it, but we don't apply it. We, t- we make fancy little stories and songs about it. But at the end of the day, none of us are willing to take the plunge to jump off into the unknown for Christ and simply obey him no matter what the cost. Luke chapter 9 and verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Wherever you go, Lord, I'm all in. And look at verse 58. That was my ad, by the way. Follow along in your Bible and you'll know when I... I am paraphrasing or when I'm illustrating. Luke 10, 58, and Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Verse 61, and another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here we have these that are counted worthy of the righteous judgment of God, the manifest take manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that they are counted worthy of the kingdom of God. You have these that are counted worthy and then you have these here in verse 62 of Luke 9 that are not fit for the kingdom of God. Not fit, not fitted out, not prepared, not ready, have nothing to offer the Lord, have nothing in their hands. Must I go in empty-handed? Must I go in empty-handed, said the man, as he wrote that great song, lying on his deathbed, having been saved only a week before, if I remember the story right, and laying on his deathbed, crying out to God, Must I go in empty-handed? Must I go meet my Savior with nothing in my hands, not one soul with which to greet him? Must I empty-handed go? And he cried out to God, Must I go in empty-handed? handed and from the fruit of that cry came the poem that became the song that has inspired thousands if not millions of people in their faith with Christ to follow Jesus harder and he's not empty handed But what did it cost him to get that crown? It cost him a quick death. One week of Christian life. You say, what do you mean it cost him that? He would have died anyway. God let him die knowing that his heart's desire was to serve God. Knowing he would utter those words. Knowing that that song would be sung and Christians' hearts would be stirred and the gospel would be carried forward. And that man has something to give his master today. Hallelujah. Now he says here, counted worthy of the kingdom of God. This here, the fourth part of this verse, and this kingdom of God is not mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. Very important. Now it's mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. (coughs) Why is that? Jesus' first message in Matthew 4 and verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is different from the message the Apostle Paul preached on Mars Hill where he said, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The repentance is still there. It's a mistake to claim that repentance is not part of the church age gospel. What a lie that is. Repentance has been in the gospel since the gospel was the gospel, and it always will be in the gospel. 
Without repentance, no one has ever gotten saved and no one ever will get saved. Now, if you have misdefined repentance and made it something other than repentance, that will cause you problems. But if you'll define it accurately, you'll see the truth in that. And we don't have time to do that today. We've done it before. You can look that up or you can just go study it out. Here, the kingdom of God is not heaven. This is absolutely key. Look up here and get this and grain it in your heart and your mind. The kingdom of God is not heaven. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you at one point, speaking of the salvation of the soul on earth, but the kingdom that is coming, Jesus, the same Jesus who said the kingdom of God is within you, said, thy will be done. He says, he says, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we are living in the kingdom coming age. Some people that would preach the kingdom now age need to read 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians was written because a bunch of heretics had troubled the church saying that Jesus had already come and that the New Testament no longer applied to them and they were in some kind of further dispensation and they no longer needed to repent and believe the gospel and follow God and they had reconstructed the whole thing. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica telling them not to be troubled by word or deed is that the day of the Lord has already come. We'll see that as we study out 1 Thessalonians. Or 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry. And you can see that there in verse 8, where he's in verse 7 and verse 6. This is all coming. We're in verse 5 right now. Verse 6 talks about God recompensing tribulation, talking about the great tribulation, ultimately, though it has practical application today. And then in verse 7, he talks about Jesus Christ being revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels. In verse 8 is the flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Verse 9, punished with Everlasting judgment, um, everlasting destruction. Verse 10, well, he shall come to be admired in all them that believe, etc. And all of this is talking about, and then getting into chapter 2 where it talks about the man of sin and the abomination of desolation, etc. The mystery of iniquity. Um, all of that stuff's coming. We'll get there as we study through the Bible. Here in, the, in this epistle, it is very purposeful and very right and accurate that God inspired the words kingdom of God in this place. Now, some people like to split hairs and say the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of heaven. If that, I, I do not see that. I'm not going to fuss with people about it. I don't see it. If it's there, maybe God will show me someday. But in any case, the kingdom of God, he says, here that he's talking about this kingdom of God that you're being counted worthy of is the reign of Christ on earth. And so here Jesus Christ is coming back. And when Jesus Christ comes back, there's a reward and we will rule and reign with Christ. And your listen to me, your salvation is not by merit, but your position in the kingdom is by merit. And I know some of you say, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. But it's true. And you can read your Bible and see it. Your, your, your eternal salvation is by grace through faith. But your position in the kingdom is based on what you did with what God gave you on earth. Not what you did with what you didn't have. Remember the widow's might? She gave all. And Christ said she gave all than them, all than them all. I wonder how many widows will be ruling and reigning over millionaires in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not, I would be surprised if very many millionaires make it to a high rank in God's kingdom, whereas many widows will. You say, wait a second, suffer not a woman, take authority over a man. In God, there's neither male nor female, the Bible says, and heaven will be as the angels of God. 
neither male nor female. So I don't know how all that's going to work out. We'll just throw that in to blow your mind. Your mama might be your king or your governor in the new heaven and new earth, you rebellious little brats out there. How about that? I'm not saying that mean. I'm just saying you better think twice. You better think twice. All right. So the kingdom of God here. The kingdom of God that's coming, this kingdom coming theology is being introduced by the Apostle Paul in the second epistle to the Thessalonians in order to address this major question of whether or not the day of the Lord has come and to encourage the church to persevere. He's telling them that this manifest token, their suffering and their faithfulness and patience to bear through the suffering of God is a direct result to them obeying a king who is not recognized in this world because they're following a king and laws of a king who are not recognized the king's not recognized his laws are not recognized if they hate the master they'll hate the servant and therefore the world hates Christians who are true born-again Christians and because of that things are not going to pan out everything's not going to push up roses for you in your life you're going to have hardened times yea and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. It's a war. It's a fight. You're not going to get there without a battle. You say, wait a second. I thought we're saved by faith. Again, you are saved by faith. We're talking about the kingdom of God, your position, your rank, your reward that you're going to have, your role that you're going to have. You say, oh, I don't care about any of that. And you get all pious and puff your chest out and say, I just love Jesus and I'll just be glad to go to heaven. And then you go turn on your stinking TV and go back to your apathy and you're nothing but a liar if that's your condition. Saying you love God but your works deny Him. All these people out here say, oh, I don't really care about that. I just love Jesus. Be careful with that. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you love Him, keep His commandments. You say, what's the big deal with this rank and reward? The rank and reward gives glory to God. That's the big deal. The crowns to cast at his feet. It's not about you. It's not about me. The rank and the reward gives glory to God. And your role in the kingdom gives glory to God. And if you really want to be close to Jesus, you will want to be close to Jesus in this life, obey Jesus in this life, do battle for Jesus in this life, win victories for Jesus in this life, so that you can be closer to him in the kingdom. You say, how does that work? Aren't we all equally close? I have no idea. A lot of that stuff is such a mystery. All I can say about it is that if there's different ranks and different roles, there's going to be different people that are closer than others. John, the beloved, would lay in Jesus' bosom at the dinner. Other disciples were across the table. Now, I don't know how all that works, but it's going to work. Remember those two sons of Zebedee? And they said, they had their mama come with them, and they said, Grant that my two sons will sit, one on their right hand and one on their left. And Jesus said, it's not mine to give. It'll be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. You know what that means? There are spots that are closer to Jesus and spots that are farther away from Jesus. And I don't know how that works out. Yeah, David did say better be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I agree. I agree. And if all you do is get saved and go to heaven, hallelujah, bless God, praise the Lord. I'm glad for you that you're not going to burn in the lake of fire. It's worth it. But if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and if you love his appearing and if you want to be close to Jesus, you're going to get 
in the battle. You're going to go for the fight. You're going to try and do his commandments. You're going to try and follow Jesus. And if you do that, the world's going to come after you. If you do that, this world system will break you and break you and break you and break you every time it possibly can. Because this world hates Jesus and it hates everybody that loves Jesus and it ain't fair, honey, and it's not going to be fair. It will never be fair, not until the kingdom comes and then it won't be fair then either. It will be justice. We're going to see that in the coming verses in Thessalonians. Whenever he talks about the next verse, seen as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Verse 7, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, etc. We're not going to get into all that right now. So here, the kingdom of God, not mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, now mentioned in 2 Thessalonians, dealing with Christ's second coming, dealing with the millennial reign, and then dealing with the everlasting kingdom as well, because those rules, those, those ruling and reigning and rewards that all come during the millennial reign are going to somehow carry forward into that eternal kingdom of God that He's going to make on the new heaven and new earth. All of this is in your Bible. A lot of people twist it into all kinds of junk. Matthew 25, 1, 14, 31 all talk about the kingdom of heaven. These are kingdom parables. It is capital W wrong to try and apply those parables directly to the church age, though there are indirect applications that are extremely pertinent. All scriptures given by inspiration of God, but the context is kingdom parables. He's talking about the kingdom. Study them out. Matthew 22, a kingdom parable over and over again in the teachings of Christ. There are kingdom parables. Now we as Christians Christians, if we want to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom, we must rule and reign in a spiritual way in his kingdom today, though the kingdom is coming because the kingdom of God is within us. Well, yet it awaits to be revealed on earth. And I know that might be a little bit out there to you sounding, back it up, rewind it, listen to it again, fact check me, look at it in the Bible. The kingdom of God is within us. How are we judged this righteous judgment of God? Why are we under persecution? We're under persecution, he says right here, for which ye also suffer. For what? For the kingdom's sake. He says that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. You're suffering today as a Christian, if you're suffering, because you are living kingdom principles in a devil's world. People talk about the devil's hell. It ain't the devil's hell. It's prepared for him. It's where he's going to be judged. The world is the kingdom of the God of this world right now. The little G God of this world, the devil. This world is filled with devils and it's under control of the devil to a large part today. And when you live according to kingdom truth in a devil's world, it will cost you. It will cost you. For which also ye suffer. But... That suffering as you patiently, faithfully hold fast the word and stand for Jesus Christ. That suffering, he says, is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless God. You say, preacher, what are you working so hard for? What are you trying? What are you giving your time for? What are you doing all this for? It ain't for this temporal world. 
You say, well, isn't it for souls out here? Well, in a way it is, but it's for my master. It's for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for the kingdom that's coming. And nothing this world does can take away the kingdom that's coming. Do you know what that means? That means that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Hallelujah. Always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You slave away at that little church God gives you and it splits and it fractures and it splits and it fractures and you try and hold to the Bible and you try and do what's right and at the end of it all everybody thinks you're a crackpot. Everybody thinks you're an idiot and nobody comes to church there and you die in ignominy and there's a little bitty obituary says pastor such and such church for 48 years and everybody reads it and says what an idiot. That church was so stupid I never understood what they were all about but in the kingdom you've got a reward. Hallelujah. Bless his holy name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Bless the name of Jesus. This is where it's at, folks. This is where it's at. This is what will keep you. This is what will carry you through the difficult times. This is what will carry you through the battle. Recognizing that this is with God. That this suffering and the faithful and patient endurance of this suffering is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which ye also suffer. Christ came to rule and to reign. This is critical right here. Follow along. Very critical. Christ came to rule and reign and they rejected Christ. I didn't put the text down. I meant to. There in Romans, it tells us he's concluded them all under sin that he might have mercy upon all. We are living in the kingdom coming age because when Jesus came and preached the kingdom is now, people said no. And the king went into a far country and he left behind him his servants And he's coming back someday to institute his kingdom that has been postponed. In the meantime, God cut off, pruned away the Jew, grafted in the Gentile into the olive tree, preserved a remnant of the olive branches. Read it in Romans. He will graft them back in again after he harvests the olive branches of the Gentile church. The time of the Gentiles is extended today, but Christ is coming and Christ will reign. Believe and be saved. You get eternal life. Hallelujah. Follow Christ. Suffer with Christ. Partake of His sufferings and rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. You say, well, I don't really care about ruling and reigning. Well, Christ does. And He cares about you ruling and reigning. And if you don't care about it, then I have to tell you, you don't care about what Christ cares about and that's a sad state. And that needs some revival going on right there. If you don't care about ruling and reigning, if you don't care about reward, get off that high horse of fake piety where you say, I don't really need a reward. I'm just happy I'm saved. That is apathy. It's lethargy and it's a stench in God's nostrils. God wants you to care because your reward is a direct reflection of your sovereign, of your ruler, of your king. And God wants you to have a reward. That's why he offered it to you. You say, well, I got a birthday present for my kid. I bought them a birthday present. I was sure they'd love it. And the day of their birthday came around. It was a great big box with a bicycle in it. It was all wrapped up and beautiful. And I put it right in the living room. And they walked by it never said a word all day. They acted like it wasn't even there. They didn't. And they just played with their old toys. Finally, at the end of the day, I told them, here's your birthday present, Tommy. Won't you open it and join it? He says, yeah, I don't really need it. I love you just the way you are. 
I don't really want a birthday present. Well, some parents might say, well, that's all sweet. But if that parent had done that, knowing that Tommy did want it, and now Tommy just doesn't want it, they would be offended. They'd say, what's the matter, Tommy? And they say, it's, it's, it just costs too much. It's too much work. I might get hurt riding the bike. I, never mind. I don't want to mess with it. And we're not talking about a bicycle. We're talking about a kingdom. We're talking about ruling and reigning. And God wants you to rule and reign with Christ. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. God has a position for you. And for you to just say, I don't really care about it. What an offense to God. Your work will be burned. Your soul will be saved, but you'll suffer loss. Your choices on earth affect your role in the kingdom. If you are faithful in little, you will be given much. If they call the master Beelzebub, they will call you Beelzebub. We are living as subjects of a hated king who is unrecognized in this world. It's going to bring you suffering today, but rewards and riches tomorrow to your king. As we're closing here, I want to remind you of a parable that Jesus told, and it's one of those in Matthew 25. It's a kingdom parable. And here are all these guys with their talents that they're given. And one of those talents said, I knew you were an austere man, so I hid your talent in the earth. Here, thou hast what is thine. If you say, God, I don't want to rule and reign. I'm just happy that I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And I just want to check out of the suffering and live a peaceable life. You know, you talked about in the Bible, I want to prosper and be in health and enjoy this life and, and just live a normal life. And I don't really want to be in the fight. What you're saying to God is here. Have what is thine. You can have it back. You gave me a talent to invest in your kingdom. You gave me something to do, something to fight with, a purpose bigger than this life, and I didn't want it. Instead, I pursued temporal satisfaction, temporal peace, temporal tranquility, temporal health, temporal happiness at the expense of the kingdom. Have what is thine. Again, it's a kingdom parable. How are you going to go read it? Read the end of it. Ask God to teach you what it means. I'm still asking him. That servant gets cast into outer darkness. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not hell, by the way. That's a kingdom parable. I don't understand exactly what all that means. Maybe you should read it. Check it out. Think about it. If you don't want the rewards and riches, that's what you're saying to God. Be faithful. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you'd use this message. We pray, Lord God, that you would defeat the devil. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be patient in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Lord, give us power and strength and wisdom to do battle for your kingdom, to stand in the midst of this crooked generation, Father, and having done all to stand in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Oh, Lord, help me to be faithful. I want to please you. I want my life to count for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't waste your life. Amen.